welcome to the last episode of Series 3 of Pause and Listen, the podcast from Pause. I'm Claire Laxton and will be your host for this episode. Pause is a national charity working with women who've experienced or are at risk of having their children removed from their care. We offer an intensive, trauma-informed model of support to women, so the removal of a child should never have to happen more than once. We have a couple of really exciting guests for you today and I'm looking forward to the conversation so much. I'm pleased to be joined by Laura and Peggy of Two Good Mums. As a bit of background, Laura is the first mother of CJ and RJ and Peggy is their adoptive mother. They have a unique friendship and I know it will be an interesting one for all our listeners. Laura and Peggy, welcome and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having us. My name's Laura and I am the birth mother to CJ and RJ. CJ is the eldest. It started when CJ was five months old and social services removed him from my care and his dad's care and he was placed in foster care originally and we went through the court process and they did lots of assessments and sadly we weren't able to pass them because as soon as CJ was out of my care I just fell absolutely to pieces I had no support and he went into adoption shortly after and RJ was born not so long after there was another assessment again but he went mainly because not enough time had passed and that's where Peggy comes in. (laughs) So we actually met when Laura was pregnant with RJ it was after CJ had been placed and we jumped at the opportunity to meet her and it was a really positive meeting And we'd work backwards and thought if that meeting didn't happen, we wouldn't be where we are now. Laura, you talk about lack of support and not being able to pass the assessment. It's a really common experience from particularly the women that work with pause. And that's something that we want to happen for all birth parents is that actually they should be getting that support. Because how can you expect someone to recover from that trauma if you're not giving them help? Absolutely. This is probably the biggest trauma that anyone's been through, having a child removed. At that moment, you don't think, oh, it's fine. It'll all be okay. They'll come back to me and I'll just I'll do what's needed to be done and and we'll, we'll get this sorted. It doesn't happen like that. You absolutely fall apart. And I did. And my mental health wasn't the best anyway. And I was young. I was only 18, but I was a young 18. This was a whole other world to me that was terrifying. And in some respects, that probably made it harder because I had no knowledge of the system. So tell us about first meeting and what happened after that meeting. How did you build that relationship with each other? At that meeting, we gave Laura some photographs of CJ. And at the time, she was really enthusiastically saying how she was going to put them in an album. And we thought she meant in a physical album. And we thought, that's a bit nerdy, but isn't that sweet? She's going to value the photos. And it turns out she meant social media, because this is going back, what, 14 years? And it was the beginning of social media. So us being old fogies, we didn't know what she meant. But tacitly, we'd given our approval to that. And social services jumped up and down when they found out. And they wrote a really nasty cease and desist, you'll never see another photograph ever kind of letter. When I quizzed my social worker about why such an extremely hostile response to a misunderstanding, she said that a lot of her time was being spent firefighting because children were hitting the teenage years and not having questions about their family answered. And so they go out seeking answers for themselves because if their adopters have not provided the answers in all that time, 
they're not going to do it then. And so this is when things go off the rails, potentially. So social services were being very defensive about this because it was new and they couldn't understand it. And at that point, she couldn't even look on the, the social media site herself. She had to bring it to me and ask me to look because she wasn't allowed to do that. So it was quite a strange situation. But what we took from that was that we can't change the internet. We can't change social media. So we needed to really get ahead of that and have all the answers that the boys needed before they hit the teenage years. We consciously were thinking about how to do that. The social services were asking, send photos, but in a way that they can't be replicated and put on social media. So we had all sorts of tricks for that, which Laura didn't notice that's what we were doing. She just thought we were being really creative. But we thought this isn't the long-term solution. So I went to an adoption conference. Beth Neal was speaking. She presented research findings about when contact works well, and it's when the adopters are open to it and the birth family are accepting of not necessarily the fact that they've lost their children, they're accepting of the placement. And because we had met Laura, we thought, yes, we're the right match. And so we decided to create a separate email address to give to Laura, but then we had to work out how to do that. <laughs> and we did that when RJ was offered to us. We pushed for another meeting with her. Social services pushed back saying, no, you've already met her once, you don't need to do that again. But we knew why we wanted to do it. We, were, we had this ulterior motive. And we said, well, we also write to her mum and her sister. It'd be nice to meet them. And so we had this little bit of like standoff. They ignored it for quite a while and eventually it happened. It's one of our favourite shared memories, isn't it, Laura? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell them what happened. When I'd had my second son, RJ, when I knew that he would probably be going in for adoption, I asked them to ask Peggy and Chris if they would like to adopt RJ as well, and they said yes. That meeting came around, and it was in another social services office, and my mum and my sister were there that time, and at that meeting, that was the first time I was able to hear the boys, because Peggy and Chris brought along a video. And I ended up crying and it was a rather emotional (laughs) meeting that time. And then it came to winding down and Peggy and Chris gave me an email address. And I was a bit, oh, what's this for? At first, when I saw it, I thought, that's not meant to be in there. Pretend you've not seen it and slowly pass it back. (laughs) Um, But no, they started telling me that it was for me and they wanted to open up a different avenue of communication that was a, a purpose-built email and in the background there were two social workers just absolutely losing their minds you could tell they were like what's going on this isn't normal what do we do I've listened to a few of your podcasts and the one where you talk about meeting each other what really struck me was Peggy when you said yeah we want to meet Laura And it was clear that that doesn't happen very often and they didn't really want it to happen. But because you wanted it to happen and pushed it forward, they did it. It's so clear how theory and practice is disconnected. It's the culture around building those relationships just doesn't seem to be encouraging of it. The letterbox contact is very much an administrative process rather than supporting people to meet each other and have that contact. That kind of resistance that we experienced, well, it was 14 years ago. The feedback we've got from the podcast is that it's still happening. Yeah, from talking to lots of the women that we work with, it hasn't changed, which is a huge shame. But this is why we're having this conversation and why we do what we do, isn't it? 
for you both, you've obviously been through so much together. You built that relationship. What do you think those main barriers are for other birth families and adoptive families to having a similar relationship? First and foremost, it is social services and the way that they do things. They're just so scared of what could go wrong that they're not even willing to try. And they're just very stuck in the past. Times have changed. Letters are just not enough anymore. But secondary to that, you've got to have adoptive parents that are open to it and birth parents that are accepting of not the adoption per se, but accepting of the situation as it is at the time. I believe that birth parents will have to be at a certain stage in their grief and the journey that they're okay to meet them. I have come across many birth parents who place the blame of what happened in the wrong places. And I can understand that. I'm not saying that that's wrong because I think that's a stage in most birth parents' journeys that they have to go through. And it shows the lack of support in my eyes. And me personally, it was right for us when we met. It, it was only about three months after the boys had been adopted. But I never placed the blame on Peggy and Chris. To me, they were always the people that have my children now and they're the ones giving them the love that I'm no longer allowed to give them. And I saw it from a very, very positive point of view. Why would I hate the people that were giving my boys the love that they needed, the love that I couldn't give them and the opportunities I couldn't give them and the life that I couldn't give them? Yes, of course, I wanted them with me. But if I couldn't have that, then why wouldn't I want them to have something that Peggy and Chris are now giving them? And Peggy, what do you think? Is there any other barriers that families and parents come up against? The letterbox system where you can't tell your child you love them. And the fact you cannot build a relationship by writing once a year. You're just information exchange and it's not fit for purpose, essentially. Yeah, I completely agree. And lots of the work that PAUSE practitioners do is supporting women with that letterbox contact. And it's just things like knowing what to write and what you can't write. And women who have challenges reading or writing. And actually, if we weren't there, they wouldn't be able to write that letter. And, and an adoptive family might think that that means that they don't care or they're not interested. It is definitely something that, that needs changing. I completely agree in terms of the barriers that exist there and they just don't seem to prioritise relationships or connections. Just thinking about a lovely daydream if you were both in charge for the day, do you like co-prime minister? What would you change in the system for parents and birth parents like you? I would say the equality of support offered. When Peggy was telling me her side of her journey, it was very evident that they get assessed. I was shocked at how much assessment goes on for them as well. But it came across in much more of a positive way with support there. And why isn't that support given on the other side? I would put some kind of advocacy and support in place from day one of that child being removed. I had none. I had none during, I had none after. And that's severely needed, whether it's going to change the situation of the child being removed or not, they still deserve support, the birth parents. What about you, Penny? What would the first thing be? Wow, okay. you made me in charge for a day. Wow, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I would flip the current 
ideas about contact on its head, I would go for open adoption as a default, because I think the majority of situations could manage it. Obviously, we don't want to put children at risk of harm, and there will be a small element that that wouldn't work and wouldn't be right or safe for the child. But for the vast majority, it would be a good thing. Research tells us that, that the child benefits from knowing where they're from and having that communication. It would be good for the first family because it would help with their healing and would help to have that ongoing contact. I think it would change the mindset of adopters because if they come to it knowing that it's an open adoption, you're going to self-select out of that if you're not going to be open to the communication. And I think if you come with the mindset, it's a different way of parenting as opposed to being a mum or a dad and a different way of creating a family, then I think that that is a better foundation to be working from. The way I like to think of it, and I've done this in the past, is that when I married my husband, we became by law a family, he and I, and I inherited all his family and they're all in-laws. And we think of Laura and her family in a similar way. Our family was created by law. This time it's adoption law. They're in-laws. And just like any other in-law family, you, you do your best to get along and make it work. I would like to vote for Peggy to be in charge for the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess just moving on to the last question, there'll be lots of birth parents and lots of adoptive families and prospective adopters who might be going through similar things that you've both been through. Is there anything that you'd like to say to them about what they might be going through? Two things. First thing, I'd say sorry. I'm so, so sorry that you are going through this. And I truly, truly hope that you have some support around you. Secondly, as a birth parent, I know I'm 15 years out and that to some people going through it right now might seem like a whole entire lifetime away, but it does get better. And you don't have to forget them. You don't need to let go. But you can live your life and you can be happy and it will happen. Thanks, Laura. That was really powerful. Thank you. What about you, Peggy? What would you say to people in your similar situation? If I was talking to adopters, I encourage them to take ownership of the communication because that's what we had to do. And at the time, it felt very bold and very maverick. I don't like the power imbalance that exists, but the reality is the adopters do have more power in the situation. So it's a case of recognising that power and you being the one to keep communication going when year after year, if you don't hear anything, that doesn't matter, and, and be kind and non-judgmental and give the other person benefit of the doubt because they may have literacy problems, they may have mental health problems, where they just can't face writing that letter. It doesn't mean that you stop writing. For the benefit of the kids, keep going. Thank you both. And finally, tell us about Two Good Mums. How can we find out more about you? Laura, you've got a memoir out. We have www.twogoodmums.co.uk. My book, Baby of Mine, A Birth Mother's Journey Through Forced Adoption, that's on Amazon exclusively at the moment. There's a link for it on the website. There's links to all our social media on the websites. So we have a group on Facebook where birth mums, even adoptive parents are all more than welcome to come and chat. Laura and Peggy, thank you so much for giving up your time and talking to us today. It's been a really great conversation and really will, will resonate with lots of people who are listening today and lots of the women who work with PAUSE and I'm sure lots of adopters and adoptive families as well. Thank you very much both. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you.
We'll be back soon with another series of Pause and Listen. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Pause, just go to pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram at pause.org. If you're new to this podcast and enjoyed it, you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, thank you.